you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. And welcome. We are back at it again this week. And not only this week, but I spent some time the other day actually um, reviewing all the stuff we can do. And I think I've got episodes lined up through September. So if you enjoy this, you're in luck. We're getting multiple months of this going on as I keep this laid out. And if you don't enjoy it, then why are you listening to it? Turn the radio off. It'll, it'll be all right. Put your phone down. You can, you can put your phone down. You can do it. With all of that said, in seriousness, though, uh, hi, I'm Michael, and yes, I'm waving at the computer just because I'm weird like that, but I've come to you this week to tell you that if the foundations are rotten, the building will fall. You're going, oh, that can't be good. And you're right, it, it isn't good. Today, we get some fun. We are going to have a little bit of Middle Eastern mysticism wrapped in a lovely warm blanket of Christianese. It is time for Manny. You're going, what? Yes, Manny. And this is where it gets really good, because thanks to the discovery of the 5th century Codex Manichaecus Colonisi, or Colonisi, I don't know, the Cologne Manny Codex, because that's where it's stored, is in Cologne. We actually do have some information on this guy, and although it might be a little uh, hagiographic, as in mythological in nature, it is truly written about the man, the myth, the legend, the heretic Manny. Who is this Manny, you may ask? He was born in modern Iran, or Iran, depending on how you like to say it, which is really ancient, what, Babylonia would be the name at the time? So somewhere around 216, he dies in prison under persecution in 274. And by persecution, I mean nobody liked him. He, uh, he ran afoul of Eastern religions, he ran afoul of Christian religions, he ran afoul of everybody. It was just fun. His father was a member of the Elkacetes, or El El Quesites, I don't know, it sounds like a dish you get at Taco Bell, I think, but we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail about them. Uh, suffice to say, the El Quesites were an offshoot of the Ebionite heresy, which we've covered, and they were strongly condemned by, by our boy, Hippolytus, Refutation of All Heresies, Book 9, Chapters 8 through 13. But he was not alone. Eusebius and Epiphanius also condemned this group, but this is a, a little warning shot here, because... This is not a good start if you are Manny. Being raised in a Babylonian uh, heterodox-slash-heretical group does not typically make for good foundations, and unfortunately you're going you're gonna to see that. At some point, apparently, in his life, somewhere around the ages of 12 and 24, Manny received visions of angelic beings, and these visions commissioned him as a prophet of the true gospel of Jesus, and, and we're putting that in air quotes, obviously. Now, notice this. Always works like this, doesn't it? Nobody in these little religious sects ever gets called to be Jeremiah or John the Baptist. They're never the one to suffer for the faith. They're, ne they're never the one to be the forerunner of the guy. They're always the guy. It, it's just always how it's amazing how this always happens in just that way. And you notice that they're always called to restore the lost faith. 
you don't have some dude running into Wendy's, you know, kicking in the door going, Hey, I had a vision of an angel, and he told me Isaiah was absolutely right. Or, you know, dude running down the street with a sandwich board telling you repent, the end is near. Why? Because he received a vision from heaven. And what did that vision tell him? That Paul was right about everything. It never happens that way. They never confirm the apostolic or the prophetic witness. It's always something new. Huh. Wonder, wonder why that is. Manny took his calling, traveled to India, where he studied both Hinduism and Buddhism, because apparently that's what you do in India. And unfortunately for us, and really for him too, probably more for him than us, uh, Manny built up this syncretistic religious system. He borrowed from Christianity. He borrowed from Buddhism. He even borrowed from Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism, if you can say that quickly, you're doing better than I am, which is why I can't say it quickly. So yeah, he borrowed from everything. His doctrinal rundown would include the heretical greatest hits of dualism, uh, multiple creations based on pantheistic and panentheistic deities, as well as a hierarchy of followers, depending on how devout you were. So, I mean, you could be the really, really devout ones, in which case you're in, you're the elect of Manichaeism, or you could just be a hearer, meaning you, you kind of like the idea, but you're not really serious about this. So you you still, you know, wallow in the, in the muck and mire of the world. Uh, and, and when we say dualistic as a start here, Manny was dualistic in both heavenly and worldly sense, which is, which is kind of a, a nice little double whammy there. In the, in the heavenly sense, his dualism saw competing powers of light and dark. But in the worldly sense, the, uh, the Gnostic influence elevates the spiritual over and against the physical slash material as the good and the righteous. So spiritual good, physical bad, light good, dark bad. So a Manichaean salvation would actually be you figuring out how to release your light, so free your spirit from an inner prison of physical, I guess, in return to the quote-unquote father of lights. See, doesn't that just make awesome sense as a, as a Christian religion? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it doesn't. So, this is where we, we have our little saying, Oh, Manichaeism, what is heretical about thee? Let me count the ways. This is our problem here. The problem with this heresy is not the difficulty in finding the horrendous teaching because it's so cleverly hidden in disguise. No. Our problem is narrowing down which awful teaching we want to tear apart first. And therefore, our goal is not going to be is going to be to not lose the forest for the trees. We've done this before on heretics and we will probably do it again. Our goal is going to see the over or going to be seeing the overarching quote unquote big picture doctrinal problems. This allows us to streamline not just our understanding, but our corrective by grounding us in the cardinal teachings of the faith. In other words, the big ideas. If you want the small ideas, you can dig in on that on your own. Excuse me. You can do that research and have fun. My goal is to give you the big ideas so you can apply Christian theology rightly. So for starters, and for reasons we're going to get to shortly, Manny has the wrong definition of God. He's got a dualistic framework and a multi-creation setup. The Manichaean understanding of God from the very beginning is divergent and off to a horrendous start. Now, this is true because Manichaeism rejects the biblical understanding of God. How do they do that? Well, for starters, God is the creator, as Genesis 1-1 would make obvious. And, and by the way, notice this about your Bible. Scripture spends like less than no time proving God. 
your Bible simply assumes, and rightly assumes, that God is there and that he is doing things. Why? To, to do other, otherwise would be foolish, Psalm 14. The Bible is concerned with godly wisdom and instruction. Read the book of Proverbs, it will do you good. As opposed to the foolishness of sin. So it's obvious that God is the creator, Romans 1. And that he is the one from whom all things owe their beginning and their end, Psalm 24. More than that, however... God is also a sustainer. This is important. He is the one to whom we owe not just the beginning of our existence, but its continuation as well. God upholds all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And that is a good thing, because if he did not, we'd be in big trouble. I mean, if God were to blink or sneeze or look away, we would all be lost, because he is the one who upholds. Now, the eternal immutability which is really just a fancy theological word for unchanging. The immutability of God means that his upholding work is right and good. Why? Because God is right and good, and because he does not change, he continues to engage in his, his sustaining work, and because his character cannot change, the work that he does based on his character is good. Therefore, his upholding and sustaining work is, by definition, good. See where your theology proper is so helpful? Now, we know this because we can read our Bibles. God's character and nature are revealed to us in Scripture, and his works are based on his character and nature, and therefore, because we can trust that work, we can, we can trust what is being produced by that work, what God is building up in us. This is James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. This is Romans 8, where God is working out things for those whom he loved. He is glorifying himself, and he is sanctifying his people. And of course, all of this is possible because why? God is the solitary almighty of everything. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the one and only eternal power, Isaiah 45.5. This means that God and God alone is the one who will absolutely accomplish anything and everything in this universe, Isaiah 14.24. This is important. You accomplish things in your day-to-day -day life, but in the grand scheme of God and his plan, you don't accomplish anything. God accomplishes his work through you. That is why he gets the credit and the glory for all the good that occurs. Even in the unbeliever, why have they done anything that is good and right? Because God has restrained their sin, held back their evil, and allowed his goodness to be shown through what is even an unbeliever. So once again, who gets the praise? The pagan for happening upon a good thing? No, the God who is at work behind them. Now, this means that God is the one who accomplishes, and his solitary rule extends to the things of earth, as in Psalm 2 shows, as well as the heavenly spheres where we sinful humans like to uh, imagine that there are other supposed gods taking their stand and doing their work. There aren't. There is a singular and one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, that leads us to our other big idea when we're trying to figure out what's wrong with Manichaeism cosmology. All of this stuff comes from God. And when I mean this stuff, I mean all the stuff. Look around, open a window, check outside. All that stuff came from God. And God alone, this is a constant idea in scripture. And the reason I say that is this, this is a great example. Job. 
in the midst of his grumbling, so chapter 9, acknowledges the singular power, might, and rule of God over creation. Even Job, when he's complaining that he wants a hearing with God and that God is being mean to him, even he has to acknowledge what? That God's the ruler. That's hence the reason why he wants his hearing with God, because he recognizes that God is the power. Our universe is one of order, not chaos, control, not division, singular rule, not dualistic jockeying. God has not failed in his creation, thus we're refuting the multi-creation view of, from Manichaeism, nor has he started over. This is one of my uh, problems with the catastrophe theory of understanding the book of Genesis, that you have between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 a catastrophic event that destroys the creation. That would mean that what God created was not good but that it was demolished and he recreated it as good. See, that's a problem. You're already down the slope of Manichaeism. Day age, we'll discuss at a later date, but just you know, keep that one in the back of your head. So God hasn't failed. He hasn't started over. And even in his judgment, see, that's Genesis 6 through 8, you know, that whole flood, waters from above, waters from below, fountains of the great deep, whole destruction thing. God doesn't lose sight of his ultimate goal. See, the flood wasn't to cleanse the earth. It was to demonstrate the wrath of God against sin and the seriousness with which he takes sin. He does not destroy the earth or end all life. In order to have done that, Noah doesn't get on the boat. Instead, what you see is God focusing his people on the ultimate goals, which are what? Restoration and redemption. This is your uh, Romans 8, 19 through 22. Even the creation. Yes, it will be purged with fire. First uh, or second Peter, read the books of Peter. It will do you good. Even though it shall be purged with fire, it is not destroyed. It is not consumed. It is redeemed. Now, this idea leads us to our, uh, our next big thing the exclusivity of Christ. Nowhere, and I mean nowhere, does the Bible or Christian theology even remotely allow for a redeemer or worker to come anywhere near the same standing or footing as Christ in regards to, well, anything. And certainly not in regards to his salvific work. Jesus' own testimony in the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 14 through 17. Yes, some people like to include John 13. I don't. I think it's part of that Last Supper thing. So I think the discourse is the teaching material, but that's another show. This shows this, is, this exclusively. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not, not one not some, sorry, no one, not someone, not anyone comes to the Father, save for through the work of Christ. This is John 14, 6. Peter's sermon at, Pente at Pentecost. Wow, I gotta slow down. Peter's sermon at Pentecost even concludes with this idea. What's his appeal in Acts 2, 37-42? It's an exclusive appeal to what? Redemption in Christ. You can follow along with Peter in Acts 4, 12. What does he tell in his, in his next sermon, his next public teaching? That there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. This is the admonition that only Christ saves. And you can even go to someone like Jude, uh, verse 3 of the letter of Jude. There's no chapters in Jude. It's just the one chapter, 25 verses. So verse 3, what does he do? He's worried about proclaiming and defending the one faith handed down for all time. There is Christ as Savior. He shares his work and glory for this work with no one, no one no one. So, let's recap. There's no dualisms. There's no multiples. There's a singular salvation wrought by a singular Savior applied to singular people across the ages and continents. This is key. You aren't saved because of Grandma. 
grandma might be saved. You could still be a rotten pagan. You must deal with the Savior individually. Your salvation is a direct relationship with your God. So no other system or religion, uh, or religion, well, system, function, whatever, uh, liturgy, nothing else concocted by men brings this. None of them. They all bring some sort of dualism or some sort of groupthink or some sort of work. It is not wrought by God as in Scripture. This is why Paul was so angry with the Galatians. Go read Galatians 1. They abandoned the faith for a lie, and therefore they were in danger of making shipwreck of their souls. Manny, through his uh, syncretistic dualism, peddles the same problem. The gospel has only one message, Ephesians 4, and the believer would do well to proclaim and cling to it. If you haven't noticed yet, all of these big ideas that we've talked about thus far can be summed up in one other big idea, the twisting of Scripture. This is the Manichaean big problem. Manny and his followers borrowed and stole from various worldviews, most of which would have been based on what we call um, Eastern mysticism, which their descendants are the modern New Age group. But this, is a, this was an attempt to synthesize human worship, which you've got to give Manny some credit here. What he's trying to do is build a following. And the best way, oh, I'm sorry, if you heard that, that was my neck, I'm sorry. If you, um, if you want to build a following, the best thing to do is not be exclusive. So you take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Zoroastrianism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of paganism, and you kind of stir it up in a big bowl, and you tell everybody, you're not completely wrong, you're just not completely right. So here's what you got right, and here's what they got right, and now we put it in a big bowl of heretic soup, and then you chug it down, and we have problems. Why am I putting this this way? This is the postmodern world. Walk outside. This is the world you live in. You're not wrong. We're all right. I'm speaking my truth. Shut up. There is no your truth. There is simply truth. This is again proving there is nothing new under the sun. En masse, what they were doing in Manichaeism and what the postmodern is doing today is really the lie of the garden. Genesis 3. Did God really say... This, this shouldn't shock us. Satan isn't that clever. And yes, I know he can hear me. He has, new, no, he has no new tricks up his sleeve. He's just attempting to lead people astray by the same obfuscation and the same delusion he has always used. Which, you know what? Hate, hate the game, not the player, because it's working. We're a simple lot, unfortunately, and we fall along too easily. This is the warning from Scripture. And we as God's people would do well to pay heed to it and to gird ourselves rightly for spiritual battle because we're all going to face it. So how do we as God's people stay safe from this? This is the question because Manichaeism, as I've just said, this, Manichaeism itself as a, as a religion held on in some parts of Asia up until the 14th century. That's the 1300s. And as we've already mentioned, its offspring and second cousins are really still infecting the world today. That's a long time. So, you know, again, give the devil his due here. Now, for starters... We want to do what Manny's family did not do. We want to build rightly. This was the first and tragic mistake here and why it's important that we train children so well. Build up your household, mom and dad. It is good for them and good for you. We have to remember our starting point. It's never us, never our brilliance. Why? 
We don't have any. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 uh, through 31 makes this crystal clear. Our boasting and our praise is in God. His wisdom, not ours. His righteousness, not ours. My knowledge of sin should crush my pride and my boasting. It should. If it doesn't, that's a, that's a me problem. Furthermore, my inability to cure my sin or overcome my separation from the blessings of God should ultimately also destroy my self-reliance. If it hasn't, then I'm doing something wrong. That is why God in his mercy, this is your Ephesians 2, receives the praise. He is the Savior. He is my all in all. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the sinless sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of the ages. He is the great king. He is the prophet. In other words, he is God. And I am not. And yes, I have scripture verses for all of those, and you you can see them on the write-up on Practical Theology Ministries uh, under the, on the blog page when this is over. So you can find all of those little references there. This is important. He is God. I am not. Therefore, he is my standard. He is the one to whom I look to explain the unexplainable. I can't understand God, but in Christ I can understand what I need to understand of God. When I recognize this, I am rightly brought low, and I am therefore rightly pointed to God as my wisdom and my strength. This is why, Christian, we must be grounded in Scripture. Our faith is not based in philosophy, even when we like that philosophy and her conclusions. Remember, I started there last week, but we don't end there. We want to do what? We want to deal with scripture. Philosophy can help us. Philosophical categories and understandings can aid our walk. But ultimately, our faith is based in God as revealed in scripture. Both his nature and his work, he tells us about in his revealed word. And he has graciously provided that for us. Why? Because it is the knowledge of how we defeat the enemies. It is how we are grounded. This is your warning. This is uh, 1 Peter 5. Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What can I do? I be grounded in the word, following its precepts, following its commands, following its God. He has granted me this. I have been equipped, prepared, strengthened, guided, and comforted. Think of your, um, think of your funeral verse, Psalm 23, since nobody ever says it that way. The 23rd Psalm. You know, he is our guide. He is the shepherd. He is our protector. He is our provider. He is our sustainer. He is our eternal hope. This is good. In light of that, we are called to work diligently. We must know the word and proclaim the word rightly. This is your 2 Timothy 2.15. Only then are we doing the work of a disciple. Notice what I'm saying. This this is not the work of a preacher. This is the work of a disciple to rightly handle the word. Yes, your pastor should aid in that. I seek to aid in that doing these podcasts and sermons and things on Sunday morning. But if you are unwilling to do that work in your life, I can only carry you so far. You must walk the path. See, only if you're handling the word rightly are you being a disciple, being transformed, growing in knowledge and faith. This is your Romans 12. Then, as you grow in knowledge, grow in faith, grow in service, then you are capable of doing the work that God has called us to, fulfilling our gifts, being a blessing to the body, evangelizing the lost, walking faithfully, and attaining to the salvation that Christ has reserved for us in eternity. This excuse me, is how we walk in this world. No other way. This is what Manichaeism gets wrong. They're seeking another path. There isn't one. We may like the other one better, but that doesn't make it any less evil. 
So, Christian, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Now, I already mentioned you can uh, do the read-up on this and get some of the scripture cross-references that I didn't read out because there's more on there than there are coming out of my mouth. Uh, PracticalTheologyMinistries.com. You can find that posted under the blogs. You can also see the uh, the player there for uh, past episodes. You can get links to the church, which you're welcome to join us Sunday mornings, uh, 10.30 Central Daylight Time, which is uh, UTC minus 6, Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois. We uh, were broadcasting here the audio. I know we had some issues this past Sunday, and I apologize. The computer wanted to be funky, and well, you know we're a little light on tech support. So if you're a tech support person and you'd like to join our church and worship with us, we'd love to have you. <laughs> you would save me a lot of trouble. But uh, in the meantime, you can check all that out. You can also see some of the other articles that we've written, some of the other resources. You can read our uh, theological journal, Cat. Calvary's Cavalry. Believe it to me to name it something so silly to say that I can't even say it. You can get all of that information there. Uh, Hopefully you will have some more stuff coming from Lou and I in the near couple of days. And as I already warned you, we're going to be doing heretics through at least September because I've already laid out who we're going to be talking about. And no, I'm not telling. Not telling. You can't get it out of me. Not even a little bit. So... That'll be fun. Hopefully this is a blessing to you guys and you can learn a little bit of your history and a little bit of good theology as we work through. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.